to the Scaling Japan podcast, a podcast about how to grow your business from $100,000 and beyond, and beyond in the land of the rising sun. Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Batino, and on today's episode, we have Ruth Jarman. Hello, everybody. She is the CEO of Jarman International KK. Which has continually grown this last 10 years and supports partners in Japan and overseas with their marketing and business and development needs. And Ruth also sits on the board of directors as an outside director for Kadokawa and Fujibo Holdings. And we are both from Hawaii.、Woo! And she lives pretty close to my best cousin. Oh. <laughs> So it's a、okay. small world. Yeah. Could you give a brief introduction, please, Ruth? Well, aloha, everybody. My name is Ruth, and I actually live in a place I think is the closest to Hawaii in Japan, which is Kamakura. Nice and jungly, just like Hawaii. So it's nice. And I'm happy to be here today. Thank you, Tyson, for giving me this opportunity. I've been in Japan for 35 years now. It feels so long. Since 1988, when I came to work at a big company called Rikuruto, Recruit. And since then, I've pretty much been 100% embedded in Japanese companies, Japanese projects, working with Japanese clients. Oftentimes, the end user will be the non Japanese person, but most of the counterparts that I've worked with and all the functioning that I've done and everything that has to do with an organization. Has all been based in Japan and Japanese environment and in Japanese language. So today I'd like to share with you all what I've learned. I, I think we probably need a 10 hour podcast for me to cover everything, but I would like to share about at least the way that I've done so far interacting with and attacking the, all the different opportunities that come up, including Japanese government projects as well as working with Japanese entities, because I really think that. With the globalization of Japan going forward, every single one of us here or anyone overseas who's listening to this podcast has an amazing opportunities coming up in Japan. So, if all of us can you know, get on board and join in this effort, I really think that we can not only help this country, but you know, with Japan as, I guess, the third or fourth largest economy in the world, we can kind of help the world too. So, I look forward to interacting with Tyson and all of you during this podcast. And as I was looking for a guest to talk about how to improve ourselves to the government,、yeah. Ruth was recommended to me by multiple people I respect. And so I want to give a shout out to actually Jason Ball. Both Ruth and I will try our best to speak in standard American English <laughs> and not revert to a Hawaiian pidgin English. Uh oh. Okay. But we'll, we'll try our best. Yeah, we'll try our best. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. And for me, the reason I want to dive into like selling to the government or even、uh, large entities is that, you know, like presenting an idea to the government or a Japanese client can seem easy. But when you actually do it, many people, you know, they have a hard time understanding why their idea is not accepted, even though it might have been a really good idea. Right. And sometimes the whole initiative doesn't move forward at all. Despite sometimes even people saying, like, we have the need, you can service our need, but it doesn't go through. Yes. And people have, well, cut an eye moment. I can't understand moment. Or, like, doesn't make sense. Like, this is such a no brainer. What is wrong with them? Yes. 
had many people mention that to me. And so we can get Ruth's help by, you know, like how to plant the seeds. And also like the differences between kind of getting involved in government, like, you know, working as a sub subcontractor, uh-huh. or a subcontractor, or how to participate in the request for proposals. Yeah. And just all of these things that you would learn after more than three decades in the weeds, getting things done in yeah. Japan. And so, yeah, you know, selling in Japan can seem like a big black mystery box for even Japanese people. So what are your tips and yeah. tricks, you know, that has helped you to grow Jarma International over the last 10 years? Well, I definitely agree with you, Tyson, when you say in the weeds, because that's what it feels like. So in Japanese, they say, kirikomi taicho, which is like, if you are trying to go through a jungle, you're like leading the way and you're cutting through the high grasses to help the other people come through as well. So I feel like in a certain way, what I noticed with a lot of the non-Japanese people or the international people in Japan who are running businesses or setting up businesses or looking to go public, you know, a lot of them seem to kind of focus on the non-Japanese market, which is definitely growing in Japan. The international population of Japan is just under 3% right now. And my personal opinion is probably in the next five, 10 years, just because of demographics, the non-Japanese population in Japan will probably get to about 10% of the whole population. So going after that group is totally fine. But why miss, you know, the real sweet spot in Japan, which is the Japanese projects, right? And a lot of times the people like us who speak English, who've been here a long time, maybe some of us are Japanese, but speak English. Maybe some of us here are non-Japanese, but speak Japanese. You know, there's an incredible value add there. And maybe they don't realize it right away. But a lot of these government projects, a lot of these big Japanese entities, need us like crazy. They need our perspective. They need our advice. So the need is there. But then how do you actually close that deal? Like how do you actually make it happen is the really important part, I think. Cool. No, I'm very interested in hearing it personally, because a lot of my experience has been B2C in creating a very successful language school. I help a lot of clients in B2C. I'm now helping clients in B2B. I've had some success in B2B myself to climb up the food chain from near small to medium-sized business, but going to like enterprise and maybe government level, like really really how to break in. So even for myself, I'm very interested in this topic as well. So you want to take the next step and go up to the point where you're qualified to answer requests for proposals from the Japanese government. That is something that I personally have decided we probably in my company will not try to do just because I feel like it's actually more oishi. It's actually more delicious to stay where you're sort of a subcontractor of another entity that wins that bid from the government. I can explain that a little bit later why I feel that way. Um, I think you can actually make more money that way, honestly. But it is interesting and I think it is possible. It's definitely possible for one of the companies that might be a smaller one right now, maybe, you know, just over, I don't know, a million or $2 million revenue for the year, stepping up and actually responding to these bids, you know, entering a bid for a big project in, let's say, some prefecture uh, somewhere in Japan, I totally, I think it's possible. So first thing I'd like to tell everybody is that 
when I was in recruit, one of the first things that they basically pounded into my head was how to write a proposal that is effective from a Japanese point of view. So I was in a very Japanese environment. Everything was in Japanese language. So I was with recruit people who are known as like the top salespeople of Japan for Japanese people. And Ezoi-san, who built the company Recruit, was my direct mentor for about 12 years when we were doing a real estate project together, service departments. We could talk about that later. So I was able to get direct direction on how to write a proposal in a way that makes sense to a Japanese counterpart. And the way that you do it, it's quite simple. It's easier said than done. So it takes a lot of practice. And I wish maybe we could write this down and like send it to everybody. But basically what you do is there's a specific format. So this is going to sound really, really basic and really specific. But I feel like a lot of the reasons people don't get to the next step and are not able to step up to the really big projects is because they don't value how important all these little details are. Because through all these details, you're creating your reputation with the other side. And honestly, you're never going to get a huge project from the get-go. You're going to have to build it, you know, stick by stick and then into a huge house later on. I mean, it's like little by little. And one of those first building blocks of your ability to do this is based on how you propose at the very first step. So upper left side is who it's for. Upper right side is the date. Then right below the line of the date is all your information. And, you know, you have to make sure it says Kankei Shakakui, you know, not just the person who speaks English, who's your counterpart, but Kankei Shakakui means like when they pass this document around in their company, everyone in the company, everyone in the section of that government is going to be able to read it and understand. So it should be a, I don't know if you call it like a a freestanding proposal, but it's a document that could be passed around. And whoever reads it, even if they don't know you, even if they don't know why this project is happening, they would read this document and it makes sense. It's divided into, I would say, four sections. So if you're going to take a note, this is where you take the note. The first thing that you write is mokuhyo. What is the goal? So if it's a number goal, that's fine. You put the mokuhyo is to attract 10,000 non-Japanese people per year to your town. That's the goal. So it's kind of like something that you can track. And after the goal is the mokuteki. So first you have the mokuhyo, which is the specific goal. Then you have the mokuteki, which is the objective. For what is the objective you're trying to attain by going after this goal? So it's broken down into goal and then the objective behind the goal. So we want to get 10,000 non-Japanese people to this little town over the upcoming year. The objective is to help the local economy by making sure that the people that come to the little town spend money there. And we're going to try to make sure that they spend at least 50,000 yen per person. That's what we're going to go for. So the first one is the promise. The second one is the reason why you're doing it. Then the next two steps are super important. The next step is genjo. What is the current situation? So the current situation is 
there are no non-Japanese people coming to the town at the moment. The next section is, what is the problem because of this current situation? The economy of this little town is not growing. There's a huge increase in non-Japanese people coming to Japan, but none of them are coming to this little town. That's a problem. Another one would be people just ride the Shinkansen right through this town. So they don't even know the town exists. That's a problem. So what I've noticed in all of my experience is being able to separate the current situation from the problems because of that situation is the biggest task. A lot of times we tend to combine those two. Like, here's your problem, and this is how we're going to solve it. What we have always been told that is the proper way to do it is to say, this is the situation, which is an objective view. And then these are the problems that are caused by this situation. Because when somebody reads your goal, they're going to be like, oh, that's good. When someone reads your objective, they're going to be like, yeah, that's true. Uh Uh-huh. You're right. That's exactly what's happening. And then when they read the current situation, they'll be like, yeah, that is one way of looking at it. That is our situation right now. So they said, yes, yes, yes. And then comes sort of like a kind of like a negative part, right? Like these are the problem. And then the next section is, what are you going to do about it? Here's what our proposed solutions to your problems are. And then at the very end, it's like, we would love to work with you. And we're looking forward to hearing back from you. And then we usually end it when we're doing a direct personal presentation, we'll start asking questions there. So yeah, that's basically the format for developing the proposal. It takes a lot of thought. Yeah, I really like that format. And it really goes down into, I think, multiple layers. Yes. And like, I think you mentioned, like, sometimes people just jump into problem solution. But it sounds like with this format, you really go deep into the problem and ensure that there's a mutual agreement that this is a problem that's worth solving. Then you jump into the solution. Whereas if you just focus really on problem solution in maybe one to two slides, you might not go deep enough into the problem where they actually uh, feel it viscerally. Yes. And also, I think especially with the government projects we do, the government side really wants to see you as a partner because basically everyone is using taxpayer money, right? So they don't want to see it as like you're only thinking of these three months with the RFP. Like you're really thinking long term. And you are also objective enough to say that even if we don't win the RFP, because you know it's every year, right? It's not like you're going to win an RFP for five years. It's usually every year. You're showing the attitude of we're happy to pass this to someone else because you are giving us taxpayer money to do this project. So it doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to the country. We're going to be very objective and we're going to give it our best effort this whole year. But if we don't get it the next year, we're happy to pass it to someone else because this is your property, not ours. So I noticed that that attitude is also really, really important to have. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back and let me help you and your company scale. Find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. By writing down the goals and objective part, 
it shows that you really understand the long-term view. Yeah. And I'd like to also mention the Nimawashi part of everything, because I think that a lot of people listening to this podcast might have already had opportunities that you might have missed. Because, are you ready? Especially with the government projects. Oftentimes, somebody will just be writing you and saying, I have a little sold on. I would like to ask you about something. Now, someone, it's not usually a government person. It's usually somebody who's going to go after the bid or it's usually could be one of the government people. I've had it happen with, and I, I can be totally open about this. I've had it happen with Yokohama City where the Yokohama City Convention Bureau asked me directly what I thought about this and what, what would you do about this and, you know, like a sold on, right? And the soldan can be very time consuming. They might want to have a meeting. You have to go somewhere. You have to sit there for two, three hours talking to them. You have to be like an advisor or you have to be in some kind of thinking team or like a round table or they want you to come do a speech or something. A lot of times this is either basically not paid at all and it's ending up taking a lot of your time. And you're wondering, is this really worth it? Like, what is going to come out of this for me as a company? What I have learned over these 10 years about these government projects is a lot of times the government people before they issue the RFP are asking around to different people what the RFP content should be. So when somebody is asking you for some kind of soldan and you know that this person soldan would be like a little consultation or something, and that person you know is kind of a key player, I never miss the opportunity to go and have a meeting with that person or be introduced to the person that they want to introduce me to, or they want me to come talk on this topic or something. You know, those kind of things will always lead to something else. Like I will say 99% of the time, it'll lead to something else. And oftentimes, when the bid actually comes out, you'll see a lot of the advice that you gave them in that bid. That means you now have a advantage because you were the one who gave some advice to somebody that ended up in the bid. And so now when you answer that bid, it's something that fits into what you're able to do. That's just kind of what you mentioned about planting the seeds. Yeah. So when that Nemoashi comes around to you, it's not only Nemoashi from us. It's not only us trying to you know, soften the ground so that we can move things forward. There's Nemawashi coming to you. If you're in Japan and you already have a pretty successful company, people are coming to you to ask things like soldan. And a lot of times in Japan, that soldan is the first step in something that can lead to a huge project. So you'll suddenly show up. This happened to me when I was on a mega solar project right at the beginning when I set up the company. He was just like, yeah, I want to take you to a meeting. And so introduce you to a couple of people. And I knew that he was like a key person. So I went and it turns out it was like one of the really important initial meetings. And he was introducing me as somebody who's going to be part of the consortium for this multi-million dollar project in Setuuchi. And so if I had said, I'm a little bit busy today, I don't think I can go, I would have missed. So I, I think it's very, very important to keep your ears and your antenna up for any kind of soldan. The word soldan is like a secret password in Japanese business. Gotcha. I guess that makes sense too, because it's general in a way where you're not clearly indicating that you're going to use their services. So you don't have that type of obligation or expectations, but that is part of the reasons for the soldan or the consultation or 
Yeah, and it's not making—it's not making any money for you at that moment. So a lot of times you feel like, wait a minute, my one hour is worth so much. You no, know, no, this and this. But then that investment of time and doing the hearing good. There's a lot of people that will say they want to do hearing good to you, like ask you a couple questions about something. And I think a lot of us feel like we're giving away our IP for free when we do that, right? I would like to talk a little bit later about my litmus test for what to answer and what not to answer. In general, I think that those kind of like hearing or sold on or things like that should be taken very seriously. I can definitely see a lot of foreigners, even Japanese,、uh, overlooking that point. Yeah. And thinking of let's say immediate transactional value as opposed to the long-term relationships and let's say long-term opportunities. And actually, I would like to dive into、uh, the litmus test. Please tell us more about that. It might sound contradictory to what I just said about being able to invest your time and things, but my litmus test is—you know—I do my due diligence whenever anybody comes to do sold on or hearing or something like that. I find that a lot of my international, you know, comrades here in Japan, or I don't know how you say a girl comrade, so comrade or comrades, <laughs> but I guess we can just say all comrades. They hesitate to ask about money a lot. So I, you know, recruit. It's filled with people from Kansai, okay, from Osaka, and the Osaka people are famous for nambodeska, you know, like talking about money clearly. I knew from right when I got to Japan that Japanese people were not shy about talking about money at all. But for some reason, in the Tokyo area, it's not as common. Like even Japanese people are not like really bold about asking about money. But I've had. Very good success with doing the money part as part of my litmus test. So, if someone's asking me, you know, hearing or let me do some sold on, I will ask. I won't say, well, how much is this going to be? Like, not something straight like that. It would be more like, so how do you see this project going forward in the future? Like, what is the sort of the end game on this? I'm really interested in learning more. You know, could you send it to me in my email? Because a lot of people, when it, things are just starting. They can't explain it verbally because Japan is very high context.、Uh, you know, I'm the only one who talks this much in most of my business relationships. So, <laughs> a lot of times, it's more I have to do the hearing to learn about what is the general theme of this plan that they have. And so, oftentimes, I'll say, you know, if you feel com- more comfortable with mail, could you just send me a mail about what your ideas are and whatever? And oftentimes, you'll get a really nice word document about. This is what we're planning to do, and this is how we see your role, and so it can be clarified that way. So one of my litmus tests is asking for a little bit more information. Oftentimes, ending up with, "Is there any idea for budget?" That's usually what I say. Naga yosan nitsite nanika nantonaku no kanji arimasu ka? Like, is there any kind of idea about what the budget is? I don't say how much you're going to pay me or how much is my company going to get. I always ask about the whole budget, like about how much is it. And that usually works. And then the other one is about the people that I'm going to work with. If I get a really good vibe from someone, I will tend to invest more of my time for them. But if I feel like this person might be just a, even the slightest, a little bit hard to work with, that's usually a really bad sign. Basically, you're getting married to them if you join an RFP with them and you actually win it. So、mm. you're stuck for a year. And it can be such a nightmare if it's not really well paid, and somebody's contacting you at one in the morning to ask about this and that and this and that. So doing good diligence on who the person is, like asking around, looking at your network, asking somebody that might know them, 
you know, looking at their background, having a couple drinks with them or lunch with them, just really trying to figure out if this is a good person to work with. Because I always base a lot my decisions about projects on the people that are involved in that project, even more than the money. Who are the people? Are they easy to work with? Are they timely? Do they answer questions carefully and clearly? Are they respectful? Do they call me Lucy-san or do they call me Lucy, right? That's a big sign right there. So the people. And then obviously all of us are reading the newspaper every day. So another litmus test is like, do I really think that this idea is possible? Like, do I think it's possible for us to achieve this? And if I do think it is possible based on all the information I gather on a daily basis, then I jump in. But if I think this isn't even possible, then I'll nicely, elegantly step back. And stepping back is another important decision to make, never burning bridges. So it's just sort of like, well, one time I had to step out of a really big one that just really got strange and just I felt too much risk there. So I ended up using a typical excuse of my daughter is going to college in the US and I don't know how many times I'm going to go visit her. So I don't know if I can devote enough time to this. And it was a very good way of getting out of something. So if you don't think the people are good, if you don't think this thing is possible, no matter how the good the money is, I definitely recommend don't get involved. Yeah, because I, I think sometimes it's easy just to see the revenue, but not seeing, I'll call it like operational costs. That would yeah. be more financial, but also mental energy wise too, that it could drain so much energy that would say it will cost you other opportunities. Yes. So even though you might make some decent revenue, you're losing out on a lot of good opportunities and you might just be a little bit more nasty than you should be. <laughs> or they become more nasty than they should be. I think especially for my female comrades out there, especially when you're a subcontractor, there's a lot of, I would say, power harassment issues around. So being really careful with the people that you're working with, it has been key for me. I've been in three pretty bad, you know, where you wake up in the morning and you're just so distressed about what's going to happen during the day. And that's definitely not good for your health. So try to avoid that. Thanks for sharing that tip. <laughs> Do you have any other types of, I guess, litmus tests or kind of like uh, warning signs or areas to look out for? Here's a big one, especially if you're going for an RFP. If you're going to be bidding directly, make sure you look at the certifications you need in order to participate. So one time I was actually considering doing it for my company because I had given a whole bunch of ideas to Yokohama City and they had invited me. You definitely have to participate in this RFP. But then when I was getting ready to put in the proposal, I noticed that you have to have a certain amount of uh, full-time employees. You have to have a certain amount of shihonkin. There were all these requirements that I actually had absolutely no plans to do. I like to keep my company, it's consulting, right? So you want to keep it really nimble. You want to have people on Gyomitaku Keaku. You do not want to have a permanent office in like a major office building in Chiyodaku. So I ended up not being able to do it. And it was a big disappointment because I had helped them so much with the idea. Make sure you check on what the criteria are. Unfortunately, a lot of the criteria is skewed towards big Japanese middleman, middle person kind of agent companies. So at least in the inbound sphere, you'll see a lot of like JTBs, different companies like that, that are the ones who put in the bid because they're the huge companies that have incredible amounts of money and a lot of staff. 
So they're oftentimes the ones that are qualified to participate in the bid. And then companies like me are the ones that take parts of the project. So we would be under JTB handling the section of the bid that requires us to bring in people from US and Australia or something like that. So all the reporting is done by JTB, all the financial reporting that is required by the Japanese government, which is really, really difficult and very, very carefully done, which is great. I'm glad they do it. But a company like mine that doesn't have so much staff and you know so many resources like that, we'd rather just focus on the content as opposed to the reporting. So having a big company between us and the government is, to me, the best way to do it, at least for my company size. But if you wanted to be the one that goes directly with the government, I would say definitely look closely at what the criteria are. And I think you mentioned kind of like address, Shihon Kin, and the amount of money in the bank for your company. Yeah. Like what's like the starting capital. I really did want to ask you more about the subcontractor as well. But before I jump into that, any other thoughts on about the company address, Shihon Kin, and homepage? Okay, so this is not my personal advice, but I've come to believe it. But this came directly from Ezoe-san. He's in heaven right now, but he's known as the Bill Gates of Japan. So he is the entrepreneur who's sort of inspired everybody else, right? So he was the one who clearly said to me that when you want to take it to the next level, well, my company's address is in a shared office for women entrepreneurs in Minatoku. So he says, basically, you have to, on your meishi and on your website, have an address in Chiyodaku, Minatoku. Chuoku, yeah, but the best ones are Minatoku, Chiyodaku. And the reason is because it's kind of like in Japan, if you're going to drive a car and you want to make a good impression for your branding, always good to be driving a Lexus because a Japanese person will look at you and say, huh. She knows what she's doing or that's interesting that she's not or he's not driving a Benz or I would expect an international person to be driving like a Prius or something like that, which is also fine. But you drive up in a Lexus and your Japanese counterpart is like, what is, is that? Why would you what? How did you know? You know, and so same with the Meishi. When you pass a Meishi that says your office is in Chiyodaku or Minatoku in Tokyo, your counterpart, no matter who they are, whether they're a government official, whether anybody, they'll think that you know what you're doing. Don't think that you can just do it in one of those rental offices in Minatoku. It would be better if you had like a shared office one. So it wouldn't be, you know, I mean, Regis and ServCorp are very careful. So you, you wouldn't have like floor 15 ServCorp. But when your counterpart does their due diligence on you, they will figure it out. So this gets to the next point of, the Shihonkin part. If you're really serious, I would say you need to have Shihonkin on your homepage of 10 million or 20 million yen. That would gotcha. be really important. And then the final one is you do have to have a Japanese homepage and it has to be in perfect Japanese. So you need to have a Japanese person write it all. So you don't want your English to be perfect and then the Japanese is like Sanko, like just for reference sake, because all your Japanese government counterparts, everybody, when they're looking at your proposal, they're all going to do due diligence based on your Japanese homepage. No one's going to look at your English one. Awesome. Those are some very good tips. And for those listening, so Shihon Kin, it's kind of like you're starting capital, but it's kind of like the capital in the company. But what often happens is when you start your company, that's kind of your initial capital that you put in, but also often startups, when they raise around 
they'll put that as their capital or she home. Oh, really? They do? They you do. mean on the on like a homepage, they would write the capital they've raised as their Shihonkin? Yeah, and I think it would be their initial capital plus the amount they've raised. Hmm, because you don't want it to be too much though. I would look at your counterparts homepage and see how much Shihonkin they have and kind of like in your own industry, like what would be the norm? I wouldn't recommend more than 10 million or 20 million on Shihong on your homepage because it'll look like you're too wealthy and you don't need anybody. Oh, cool. No, the- <laughs> glad I brought that up. Yeah, yeah. That's a really, really important point. Have you ever found yourself having trouble creating a business plan? Do you pretty much operate on a day to day or week to week basis, creating confusion and chaos in your organization? If that sounds like you, I recommend you join my Entrepreneur Bootcamp. In my bootcamp, you'll set an achievable but challenging revenue target for the current or following fiscal year, and we will create a business plan to make it a reality. See more in the show notes below. And now back to our episode. You've explained the case where maybe like someone would reach out to you for more information. Uh, Was that like someone from like maybe the contractor or was that from the government? Okay, that's a really good point. Because that would be something that would be a big litmus test, right? If it's somebody from the subcontractor who's contacting you, you have to understand that if you answer that, you're committing to them. So that means that when they put in the proposal, you're going to be on it. So you can't do it with anybody else. If somebody who's going to be a subcontractor like JTB or one of those companies comes to you, and you interact with them and you give them ideas and whatever, you need to clarify that, oh, are you going for this proposal? If you are, I want to be on the team with you. Let's win this. And then if it's a government person coming to you, there's no guarantee that you're going to win anything out of this. But the information you give them will definitely give you points over the long term. So the government person is not able to give you any information on who is going to go for this bid or when it's going to come out or anything like that. You basically register to these websites. I would recommend one called Yamato Gokoro. Yamato Gokoro is a website that publishes a lot of bids. It'll have the bid information. Or I'm pretty sure you can go to the government websites themselves, but the Yamato Gokoro one is really good. It's a lot of inbound related stuff. You have to register for it and then they let you know by email or something that a new bid has come out or is going to come out. So those kind of websites are good to sign up on. Okay, we'll try to add that in the show notes. And I know there's several out there, but yeah, no, that's cool too that you can see a historical bids as well. So if, if a government person were to reach out to you, that would be because you're registered on the website. No, it's because they met you at some meeting you were at. No one is going to find you through a website. You gather information from the websites. So if you're interested in, I don't know, the next turbine bid that's coming out from the Ministry of Environment or something like that, you could contact the Ministry of Environment and say, where do I need to sign up to get all the bid information? When RFPs are issued, I want to be a recipient of that. When somebody approaches you, it's usually because they've exchanged cards with you at some party It's not going to come through LinkedIn because the Japanese decision makers are unfortunately not on LinkedIn most of the time. It's going to come to you through all the contacts that you make, not the non-Japanese contacts you have. So I definitely recommend if you live somewhere in like the regional part of Japan or any even in Tokyo is fine as a company, especially if you're trying to get to the next level, 
joined the local chamber of commerce, the Japanese chamber of commerce. The Tokyo chamber of commerce is expensive to join, but if you're going to put 20 million yen in your shihonkin and you really want to go for it, join the Tokyo chamber of commerce. And then you get to interact with all the oji sons that make everything happen. <laughs> that's where you could get a lot of contacts. I think that's a shoko kaigi show, maybe? Shoko yeah. kaigi show, yes. So the American shoko kaigi show, the American Chamber of Commerce, great. Australian, great. But step out of your comfort zone and join your local Chamber of Commerce, and you will be with all the main key decision makers in that area. I'm actually someone who lives in a regional area now. That would be interesting. I feel like I have a very strong foreign base. So I think my 2024 plan is really to dive deep in Japan. But you know, that would be so smart because all the grandpas, most of the time, there are no non Japanese people in these chambers of commerce. And it shows such a commitment to the region. You don't even have to talk for the first year. You just sit there and <laughs> listen and learn. And they will all come up to you as like the only guy Kokushin that they've spoken to. I really think that that would be a very quick way to make an immediate network of Japanese movers and shakers in your area. And all of those chambers of commerce people are connected with all the other ones around Japan. I live in a city of 300,000 people, but I'm also、uh, 120 minutes away from Sapporo, which is、uh, 2 million people. Yeah. And、uh, cool. So I guess now that you've told us about the barriers to entry, Or, like, the challenges of, let's say, going direct. So, for the listeners there, that's like, okay, like 20 million yen,、uh, maybe in three years. So, I guess, how do you break into working with subcontractors or as a subcontractor? This is where all of us, as you know, CEOs and stuff, we really have to use our litmus test skills for this because if you get into a bad subcontractor relationship, it's very painful and it lasts for a year. So, all of us have these really good people in our networks. So, I do a lot of work with Kochi Prefecture. My company does. And we've received that bid. So, we've participated in that bid for the last four years with a company、mm-hmm. called Yamato Gokoro. So, they're sort of my JTB in this situation. So, they're the big one. They're the ones that submit the proposal. But we all think about it together. You know, we play a really big part in it and then we help activate it for the whole year. So we're in charge of the Instagram page for Kochi, the Facebook page for Kochi, the website for Kochi. And then we also do just general promotion for them. And the original meeting for that, like the thing that started it all, was I met Murayama san, who's the president of Yamato Gokoro. At some seminar where I was on a panel discussion, and he was also on the same panel, and that's how we met. And he was like, This is what I do. And I'm like, This is what I do. And it's like, Whoa, there might be some synergy here. Former Accenture guy, just totally on top of things, really nice guy. And then as I was meeting him, I got to meet the other people that work there, very down to earth, humble, just working really hard, doing their best. From their heart, like loving Kochi Prefecture, really wanting to help this prefecture. And I just felt like these are people that I really respect and I really like. And so I would like to work with these people. I would like to work with them. You know, obviously, it's not a dream, dream job, like nothing is. But I guess the biggest point is that when things go wrong, obviously, in any project, things are going to go wrong. It's really great if you're in a situation where there's no finger pointing and it's like, okay, so there's some problem here. Let's figure this out together. 
and everybody just comes together even more closely and tries to figure out what to do best for the client. If you get that vibe from the people when you're in the first meetings and stuff, that these are not the kind of people that are going to start a blame game and, you know, make you take responsibility for anything that goes wrong, like we're in it together. I think that's a very good sign for joining in these kind of subcontractor relationships. I guess kind of focus on that litmus test as well. So I think, yeah, you can do your due diligence on the company, other people who've dealt with them. But let's say maybe the person you're interacting with seems pretty trustworthy. How would you go about seeing if maybe the organization is the issue? First, the person you're speaking to, you should be speaking to them in Japanese and see how they handle themselves in Japanese. Because basically everything you're going to do is in Japanese. So a lot of times your counterpart who speaks really good English that you've known from somewhere meeting that you met, maybe they studied abroad too long. So they're not Japanese enough to be able to interact with the Japanese government officials like they need to. Initially, I would definitely recommend to interact with them in Japanese and try to see how they write emails in Japanese. Try to make sure that their Japanese is like spot on, number one. That would also show a lot of experience. And then you definitely want to visit their office. You say, let's have a a meeting in the office and you go and visit their office and you look around and you see what art is on the wall. You see what kind of location they've chosen. You know, what kind of feeling do you feel in the room? Like, do the um, computers look new? Do people look harried? Do people look really busy and tired? Or are P- is there good energy in the room? Like, people mm-hmm. seem excited about what they're doing. And then you look at their homepage and you, you check their Shihonkin. And then you, if you're really getting into something big, go to Teikoku Data Bank and okay. check the history of their company. So that's what I would do. And if they invite you to, like, a kickoff drinking sort of party, go. And then you can meet a whole bunch of other people on the team. Gotcha. And for Teikoku data, they could see maybe the year over year uh, financials, right? Yeah. And it also gives the, uh, like a ranking, like Teikoku data bank will rank this company as a C rank and they'll say why. So a lot of times when you're doing due diligence, it co- I think it costs a little bit of money, like 3000 yen or 4,000 yen. I've never been in a position where I had to do that, but I've on the boards that I sit on, it happens all the time. So you go to Teikoku Data Bank and you get information on this company. And Googling the company is also very helpful. Yeah, but 3,000, 4,000, that's peanuts. It is peanuts. And I think Teikoku Data Bank information is really good because it shows how much money they've borrowed, things like that. It shows their financial, like you said, the financial information. It's good. Cool. Excellent. And Tyson, there was just one more point that I wanted to make about when you're doing due diligence on your counterpart, your Japanese company. Try to find out how each of their members in the company are hired. Are they full-time employees? Are they gyomuitaku? Are they part-time? Are they on commission? You can usually ask that to the other CEO and he or she will tell you. It's a good hint about, you know, what that company's policy is and how their organization is structured if you ask under what system everyone is hired. And you also know how to interact with the person if you know they're on commission or if you know they're a full-time employee. So asking about how people are employed is, is another good way to do due diligence. Excellent. And I think we've covered about 50% of our questions. So I think <laughs> another episode is definitely due. And like, yeah, ne- next time we'll talk a little bit about the, so if you were to do it yourself, kind of like, you know, what's the presentation like, you know, what are the timelines? Oh yeah. Um, all that stuff. Which does need another episode, but so I'm yeah. going to end today's episode, but before we finish Do you have anything you would like to share 
or any asks to the listeners? Well, I guess one thing for my company that I'm really proud of is the Visit Kochi Japan Instagram page. So Visit Kochi Japan, take a look at that. And then the other one is if anybody likes to play golf and you want to do some really good networking, because I, I bring a good group of people together every month. Every month we have this thing called the Jarman International Charity Cup Golf. And it's we do it in Tochigi at Eastwood Country Club. We actually have it this month on the 28th. And we each give 3,000 yen as charity. And the charity this month goes to Second Harvest, which is for food banks all over Japan to help particularly single mother families in this really you know cold time. If they have food insecurity, they can go to the food banks. So we support Second Harvest. And our charity that we support every month throughout the year is uh, Mirai no Mori, which helps a bunch of marginalized youth in Japan, so little kids who for some reason can't live with their parents. And Mirai no Mori takes them every summer out on a camping trip to teach them English and give them a great experience out in nature. So we support that. So if you want to play some fun golf, meet some fun people, there's some good prizes, please reach out to us and join us in our charity cup. And both are great organizations and we'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much and look forward to episode number two. Thank you, everybody.